This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Management in the robo-advice space growing at quite a clip annually of nearly 27% a year for the next few years. This is according to one forecast I came across. Rob Forger is co-founder at Next Capital. It's an enterprise digital advice company. Uh, it's based in Chicago, but uh, Rob made his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Happy New Year. Nice to see you. Happy New Year. It's great to be here. It is interesting, and I've been thinking about this, the robo-advisory space, and I do wonder about financial firms with all of the increased volatility, more normal volatility that we've seen in the market space. Is that good or bad for a company like yours? Uh, I wouldn't speak to volatility <laughs> in the marketplace. Um, no, but I mean, are people saying we need more tools to kind of help you know, yeah, investors a- get their way through? Yes. I mean, from a long-term trend perspective, about 80%, 80% of, uh, of consumers in the United States today do not have access to professional financial advice. So I think that the, uh, the need is clearly there and volatile markets just uh, compound the need for, for uh for scalable advice. Well, and it has been interesting to watch some of the biggest players out there in terms of money management start to figure out how they make this part of essentially the uh, the, the tool chest, the arsenal, uh, as it were. You know, I'm thinking about BlackRock investing in Envest and, and other moves like that. More of that to come. How do you see this evolving, especially from the perspective of some of the big players? Yeah, and, and we actually, I think... There's much more to come on that front. Uh, clearly, technology is the future of the investment management industry. So it's all about really injecting technology into the traditional investment management model. And so you're seeing very large, um, what I'll call product manufacturers, the mutual fund companies yeah. and, and the like, that are, are either partnering with firms like ourselves or acquiring other firms um, to be able to deliver um, a more personalized, scalable advice solution and sort of move away from just selling product and have a, a wrap solution. They're also looking at, um, at partnering or acquiring some of these companies for, for shelf space. So some of these large companies like an InvestNet are actually becoming a large shelf um, uh, space play as well. What does this mean from a couple of different um, avenues, uh, if you will, in terms of what might we get out of uh, government regulators, legislative actions that might impact what you guys are doing. And I am also curious about, you know, financial firms kind of watching how things continue to evolve and change and what that means for either further consolidation, things happening in the M&A space. Yeah. So, I mean, from a regulatory front, just generally speaking, um, the, the, the future is definitely fiduciary. So uh, obviously we had the, the DOL fiduciary rule that was passed and then it was vacated um, this past summer. Um, however, um, there's many things that are in place that are probably going to help fill that void again. Mm-hmm. So you have a new um, SEC proposed best interest standard. It's a little bit diluted. It's not a full fiduciary standard, but uh, will be driving the industry, the brokerage industry, again, towards a fiduciary future. You also Which have- Which means what? More accountability, more responsibility? Yeah. Yes. It's advice-based- For investors. Exactly. A lot less focus on selling product and a lot more on providing personalized, That's uh, not potentially conflict-free advice. Yeah, no, it's not. And, and, and in fact, 
Um, the DOL is, has now announced that they actually may come back at, at a second bite at the apple at a new fiduciary rule um, that's potentially going to get uh, proposed this fall, this coming fall. And so that's pretty interesting. You're also seeing, uh, because of this void, um, many of the states are activist states are actually stepping in and uh, thinking about proposing st- you know, state-based fiduciary rules as well, which is also quite interesting. Right. So whether you're a retail investor or a big institutional investor, one of the things you spend a lot of your time thinking about is fees. <laughs> so uh, obviously a lot of headlines over the past year, Fidelity going to yeah. some zero fee yeah. uh, products that obviously everyone wants something for free and nothing really is. But how does that play out from your perspective? How do you balance essentially being able to pay for advice beyond the, you know, just just paying for the trade? Yeah, a great point. And so clearly the punchline is, is from a product and a security perspective, there is a race going towards zero. Yeah. So zero. Um, and, and in fact, over the past 15 years, um, expense ratio of mutual funds has gone down about 45%. And then if you look at the the ETFs and the index funds were already in that five to 10 basis point or 20 basis point category. And then obviously, as you said, fidelity dropping to zero, there's really two pricing mechanisms in the investment management industry. One is at the product or security layer, mm-hmm. which is what we've just talked about, which is going to zero. And then there's the advice layer. So the advice layer um, actually has held up pretty well in terms of the margins. So so you haven't seen you know the average advisory fee maybe in the you know 90 basis points to 100 basis points. You really haven't seen any dramatic pressure yet on the, the traditional wealth management fees. Could you see that? The answer is yes. Um, and 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 so that you know time will tell, but clearly I think you have to expect some um, some uh, fee compression on the at the advice um, layer as well. But I do also wonder about a story that's in the magazine that's just reminding people that who maybe aren't used to the volatility that we've seen in the market as of late, Rob, and that whether or not you know people are going to now look at their portfolios and maybe see some of the losses that they weren't used to because over the past ten years you could kind of throw money almost at anything it seemed and make money, but that you're going to start saying, wait a minute, I got to think about my risk tolerance and maybe I need to think about you know really my exposure, am I overexposed to tech when I thought I was much more diversified. And I do wonder whether that's where things like robo-advisors and the advisory uh, folks kind of come into play more and in, in more demand. Yeah, absolutely. We Clearly, um, it's there's been a rising tide that's lifted all boats over yeah. the past decade, as you said. And and uh, and, and clearly, it's going to be important in the, from the future perspective that people are you know properly allocated. They have a good long-term plan, understand their time horizons and the like. It's really quite critical. And that you can lose money. <laughs> this, this is true. Yeah. Uh, only about 20 seconds left. Just yep. quickly, are we headed to a more passive or a more active world in 19? Well, there's many views on that. Uh, I believe that the macro trend around passive mm-hmm. uh, around at the security layer, again, the product layer is, is going to continue yeah. irrespective of whether there's some sort of a slight reverse in 19. I'll, I'll let others opine on that. But I, but from a macro perspective over the next 10 years, I don't think the freight train is stopping. The mega trend is intact. Mega trend is definitely intact with passive. All right. Rob Forager. Jinx. Jinx. We did this again. <laughs> I know. Happy New Year, guys. Jinx, co-founder at Next Capital, based in Chicago, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Thursday. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser, along with Jason Kelly. It's front page news going down. Going down. Front page news, indeed, and certainly front of mind for investors today, and that's retail. As we look at the S&P index today, the four worst performers are right out of the retail 
sector led by Macy's, not in that. a good down way. Down 18% on Macy's. 18.55%. Kohl's down 6%. Uh, L Brands down 5.6%. And I believe that's Nordstrom it right is, there yeah. uh, in the fourth slot down about 5%. What the heck is going on? Matthew Boyle, U.S. retail reporter, and Poonam Goyle, senior U.S. retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, both with us. Matt here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Poonam joining us from BI headquarters in Princeton. Matt, want to start with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, your quiet morning of, you know, covering some earnings uh, quickly evaporated here. Yeah, I mean, there's always one surprise uh, profit warning every holiday season. And this year, uh, the surprise was Macy's, which in recent months had been, you know, in the winner's circle. Yeah. They had a turnaround going on. They had momentum. But you look at today's statement, I mean, everything that could go wrong did. They had a fire in a warehouse. They screwed up a, a holiday promotion. They didn't get enough shoppers in during December. The dog ate pre- my homework? Yeah, it was kind of like, you know, it, uh, some retail 101 types of things. So, What's going on, though? I thought Macy's well, was mean, figuring it out. They they had been, but, you know, the, the bar's higher for every single retailer right now. The margin for error is slimmer than ever and what that we saw a little bit of that in the third quarter you know there were some choppy performances from from target and others yeah. but overall the momentum the consumer was so strong you know remember target ceo said this is the strongest consumer environment what? in my whole career <laughs> you know that carried us through uh, but now you're starting to see and this is not a sign that the consumer is hurting this is more of a sign of retail health as we say in our story today this is what's interesting right jason you and i were talking about it, and i said well i feel like you know well we talked about that everybody was saying oh my god it's gonna be such a strong holiday season. Not you. you I did not. Well, I just thought that stores were empty and so on and so forth. But, you know, Poonam, come on in on this because really the, you know, what we were hearing, you know, as we were heading into the holiday shopping season and as we were in it was so much more upbeat than it feels like what we're hearing from the retailers today. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't dismiss that just yet. I think it was still a very strong holiday season. There's obviously winners and losers and Macy's, um, was not a winner this time around, but you know I, we saw results from Target this morning, and and I think the top line was quite encouraging. We also saw Kohl's, which I know the stock's trading down, but our view is that the the comp that they reported, the 1.2 percent increase, was actually encouraging. I mean, it lapped a 6.3 percent increase from last year, and that's that's good. So, uh, Putum, you heard Matt talk about some of the specific issues with Macy's. What are the consistent issues across a number of these names uh, that are down, if you can generalize? What's plaguing all of them and can't be chalked up to a, a mismanaged thing here or there? Yeah, I think, I think you know, the stocks that you spoke about, Macy's, Kohl's, Nordstrom, across the board, I do think that there was some slowdown in early December, but that's just the inherent nature of the business. After Black Friday, you know, key promotional selling, you do see a slowdown, and this year we had a larger gap in terms of the number of days between um, Thanksgiving and Christmas, so that, that always, you know, exacerbates that. But outside of that, it's really execution. I mean, consumers were shopping. Where they were shopping is a different question, but they were definitely shopping. It was a good spending environment. Um, They showed up for Black Friday. They showed up for the the few days before Christmas to get their gifts. It's just that period in between where it's always a hit or a miss. And I think that's where you're going to find it to be different for the winners and losers. Those that, um, you know, hit the bullseye there scored well. And those that didn't, like Macy's, 
um, are suffering from that. So Matt, I, and I think I want to go back to what you guys were saying and even Poonam was saying. I mean, consumers are out there shopping. Who are some of the winners that you would anticipate that we're going to be hearing from in the next few weeks or so or the next well, month? Well, remember, I mean, a lot of retailers haven't reported yet. We mm-hmm. haven't heard from Walmart. Uh, you know, we haven't heard from a lot. Costco did report just monthly sales yesterday. They, it's nothing like the f- I went under the uh, Christmas tree, but a case yeah. of, to- of <laughs> well, paper towels. Well, you left, towels. but they knocked it out of the park. You can did they jewelry, really? You know, you can yeah, get jewelry at true. Costco and you can even, you know, click and collect there, you know. Know, they're getting with it. So um, there are certainly still going to be, you know, winners as always, but it's starting to be, you know, the, the stakes are even higher and the penalties for the losers are going to be even worse. And so, Poonam, who do we want to hear from next and how much pressure is on some of these other big names to reverse the sentiment at least? Yeah, I think, I think we're still due to hear from specialty apparel retailers, teen retailers, whether it's American Eagle, Urban Outfitters. Um, Abercrombie and Fitch and the off-price retailers, you know, they've been obviously doing much better than the rest, and that trend we expect at least to continue. So the TJX, Ross, Burlington, Lululemon um, hasn't reported holiday yet. They've been on fire all year, so you know that that trend hopefully continues into holiday. What about the electronics retailers? Like, what are we hearing from that, Matt? We haven't heard we from... Will. Yeah, we will hear from uh, Best Buy uh, next month, certainly. But I think, you know, I think it was a good good holiday season for Best Buy. They, they were so confident they even added some toys to grab mm-hmm. a little bit of that Toys R Us market share that was... Uh, up for grabs and you know their approach is to have everybody they're even in bed with amazon i was just gonna say right that's yeah. i was thinking about the story uh, that was in the magazine that talked specifically yeah. about that right exactly. yeah the story that he wrote you mean oh yeah did you write co-wrote, co-wrote. susan burfeld <laughs> i'm of sorry it all becomes a blur a few yeah, weeks exactly. later <laughs> the holiday blur ouch boy it got chilly in here all of a sudden <laughs> punam i'm coming to princeton man these guys are tough um, okay, so Poonam, what are you going to be watching out for? Because I'm just thinking about investors who are watching, you know, like like Jason said, I mean, Macy's down almost 19%. Um, do you see this? I know you can't give recommendations, but is it just overdone in your view in terms of investor reaction? I mean, the valuation will tell you that the stock's definitely the multiples trading below where it used to trade by, I believe, 30% the last that I looked. But I think, you know, you asked, what are you watching for? For me right now, the most important thing to watch for is inventory levels getting out of holiday. Mm. And um, that needs to be lean across retail. Macy's, you heard them say that they're going to get promotional because they need to bring inventories down, given the sales mess. But across the board, um, we've heard from industry sources that uh, retailers took more inventory than needed um, to avoid tariff implications. And that just means that they may have, you know, more than what they can chew on to start 2019. We do want to see that come down a little. Well, and Matt, you know, Poonam points something out interesting in her latest uh, research note, and that is, you know, there was a lot made, I think rightly so, of Macy's closing down this downtown store, downtown Manhattan store. It does feel like consumer habits are changing. I mean, we are going to continue to see this. It may not be retail apocalypse, but certainly yeah. people are changing the way they shop, right? Yeah. Only about I mean, 30 seconds. JCPenney said you know, this week that uh, you know, they still found some more stores that they uh, are going to need to close. And you know, you're, you're absolutely right. People are changing the way they shop. Not just changing the way they shop, changing the way they look at right. you know, shopping. They research, you know, changing where and how. And it's going to continue again. And it's wild to walk into something like an Allbirds store down st- downtown it, you know, it's one couple handful of products, right? Yeah. But basically the same thing, just different variations. And it's packed. Yeah. And it's very simple, simplistic. 
It's not a lot of choices. The digital natives are opening stores now. As so busy you know, as can even be. They, yeah. Yeah. Coming to get them. All right. Matthew Boyle, U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, and Poonam Goyle, senior U.S. retail analyst for BI down at Bloomberg Intelligence headquarters in Princeton. How many pairs of Allbirds do you have? A Maybe few. four. A few. I'm just saying. <laughs> you are listening I'm a hog. to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser. So, Jason, this caught my attention earlier this week when our David Weston on the TV side talked with our next guest who said that in almost 20 years of watching China, that the country's economy looks worse today than at any time he's seen it. His quote, China looks very, very ugly. So I am delighted to have back with us someone I've known for a long time, Don Strassheim. He's Senior Managing Director, Head of China Research Team over at Evercore ISI, joining us from Los Angeles, California. Uh, And I know we had a bouncer around a little bit because of uh, those comments from the president, Don. So thanks for for moving around with us today. Um, Tell me a little bit about China. I do like your insight, and I'm curious about what you're seeing specifically in China that tells you it's pretty ugly, and and how do you foresee that this might play out? Uh, First, nice to talk to you again, uh, Carol. Um, Everything we look at in China does not look uh, very good. While they continue to report real GDP of six to seven percent if you look at things like uh, real measures like railway freight uh, electricity consumption you know apparent consumption of industrial metals uh, container throughput auto sales uh, truck sales and so forth they they are much much weaker than that and as you know pretty quick we have seen a lot of talk out of China over the last few months about stimulate this, ease that. Mm-hmm. That is a tell that the economy is really not nearly as, as healthy as the official numbers say. So does that mean, and I know you talked about this with David, but so lots of pressure on China to get some kind of trade deal done. Does that mean that it potentially results in a really smart, productive, forward-looking trade deal between the United States and China, or do they just look to get something done, signed, sealed, and delivered so that they can kind of move on? Well, I think, uh, actually, the uh, pressure on the U.S. side for a trade deal on uh, March 1 is greater than on the China side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and why is that, that Yeah, and the reason is that um, uh, there was this deal that said, uh, look, uh, we, we're going to kick the can down the road to 90 days from November uh, 30, December 1 to uh, March 1. And President Trump immediately thereafter filed with the Federal Register the official document that says on March 2, if there's no deal, the tariffs are going up from 10 to 25 percent. So he has drawn a line in the sand, which I don't think he wants to uh, step over. And uh, that means uh, what would would happen if uh, the U.S. raised those tariffs from 10 to 25? I think there would be devastation in all of the markets that that you guys uh, focus on. So in that way, uh, I think both sides want a deal. But I think Washington has really no choice but to make a deal. And all deals are not created equal. So it may not be the end all. Right. Won't be. But it'll be something. Mm-hmm. And, and so let's talk about that if we can. What do you think the most important but gettable thing for the U.S. is in this situation? What would move the needle from your perspective that would give the president enough to say, all right, this is a win and feel good about it? 
well, he 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 wants uh, wins, and the president is creative enough that it doesn't matter, quite frankly, how many of the wins are real news and how many are fake. Um, uh, They can be a combination of uh, both, and all he has to do is sell them to the uh, U.S. uh, constituency. Um, Something on intellectual property, I think, is coming. Um, Not a final solution, but some uh, real progress. That has been the biggest thorn in the U.S. side for what, 20 years? A long, long time. We, we grow grain and uh, um, pump energy out of the ground better than anybody else in the world. Right. They don't. So that's a win-win. These are jobs in the Houston Ship Channel, uh, jobs in the Corn Belt, and uh, uh, China says uh, we have a reliable supplier of energy and agriculture um, for the next decade or whatever. Those are both elements that I think are highly likely. Don, we only have about a minute or so left here. There's a couple stories in the Bloomberg Businessweek magazine that's just coming out uh, as we speak that I think you'll find of interest. But there's one in particular, and I just think we're so focused on uh, the U.S.-China trade talks, understandably so. But at the same time, there's a story in the magazine that talks about China spreading its technology and influence around the world, and particularly it, it... uh, focuses on Zambia and what it's doing in some of the emerging markets. And as a result, that we might have this digital iron curtain going forward where the U.S. and others on one side and China on the others. And I just, you know, as you look at China, I mean, they are definitely spreading their influence politically, geopolitically, and in other ways around the world. Just got about 40 seconds here. I think they, I think they are. My own uh, expectation, uh, worry, uh, is that the trade war morphs into a, a cold war, mm. and you end up with two tech poles, P-O-L-E-S, a U.S. tech pole and a China tech pole, and the U.S. wants its own tech sector, separate and apart from uh, China. This would be massively disruptive, um, inefficient, but that's what it means if we yeah. really believe that our national security is at risk when it touches China. Don Strassheim, always love checking in with you, getting your insight. Don Strassheim, he's Senior Managing Director, Head of China Research Team over at Evercore ISI, joining us on this Thursday from L.A. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. We've got to have some music on the new frontier. My God, Asia. That's going back. Steely Dan? Oh. It's Asia? Yeah, but it's Asia. You're close. No. Donald Fagan, ah, who was half of the original yes. uh, Steely Dan right. with the late Walter Becker. So, not bad. Are you thinking of Asia the song? Yeah. Okay, no, that wasn't it. No, it wasn't. Not bad, <laughs> but, but you're, you're, at least you're in. Chief called. He said that ain't it. You're in the ballpark, but can Carol. I just, it's fine. But did it, come on. They all sound cl- alike. Oh, whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa. I suppose you'd say that stock market indexes look alike, too? Oh, no, I would man. never say that. There's oh, heck no, because you've seen right. my chart of the day. Yeah, it's all about looking at frontier you markets. See what he did there? I know. What, what you might He's call so emerging, emerging markets. Right. I mean, uh, that for one reason or another uh, don't quite qualify for emerging market status. You know, Citigroup's out with a report basically saying that, you know, they're, they're looking for gains this year. Uh, lower valuations as a result of what's happened the past few months working in their favor and uh, what uh, the strategist Andrew Howe called a reasonably solid economic outlook. 
But, you know, there, there are some qualifiers in the mix, too, and it's understandable. Right. Because if you look at the last 10 years for the MSCI Frontier Markets Index. Here, let's do it, Jason. <laughs> Meh. Meh. Well, the way right? it's described right. in my little explanation, it goes with the chart. Lost decade. I know. It's, it's remarkable compared to emerging markets. Or developed markets when you right. look yeah. at the MSCI World Index. Just to give you the numbers, the uh, Frontier Index up just 9.5% from 2009 through 2018. And over that same time frame, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index up 70%. The MSCI World Tracking Developed Markets up 112%. That is incredible. So, right? The difference? The it's delta, quite the gap. as they say. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, you know what happened? Really, the frontier markets, you know, they were popular in the mid-2000s. Then you had the bear market, 2007 to 2009. They fell along with emerging markets and never really recovered from that. So we'll see if this right. year brings better fortunes for these frontier markets. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. All right, so let's move to a story that Carol and I both loved. It was one of the ones that we ID'd right off the bat when we came in this morning. We definitely wanted to talk about the headline, Wall Street's bullish CEOs face a reckoning. I always just love the word reckoning in a headline after stocks sell off. Uh, Lenan Nguyen is here with us, finance reporter for Bloomberg. She wrote this piece. All right, Lenan, so what's going on? These guys have been talking it up. They have been talking it up, and I think investors are not buying it. Obviously, investors are selling it, in fact. So we had a huge slump, obviously, in the financial stocks uh, in December, um, as well as the entire quarter. So as we head into earnings season, it's really going to be difficult for these CEOs to be so bullish on the economy without, I think, acknowledging that we have a lot of concerns about growth and what's going to happen in the U.S. economy. But it's crucial, right? We always talk about, Lynn that in order for us to have kind of a healthier market, we need to hear from the banks. And the bank CEOs saying, hey, folks, I'm seeing loan growth. I'm seeing this. I mean, we could, in terms of the equity markets, I'm thinking, we could see a, big of a, a bit of a boost to the upside if we get a lot of positive words and results from these guys. Yes, or we could see a lot of the downside way. the other way yeah. around. So what Mike Mayo from Wells Fargo was telling me, which I think is pretty smart, is that there's a negative feedback loop that could potentially happen. Because if the CEOs don't talk about the risk of recession, if they don't talk about these potential storm clouds and what investors are really worried about, right. they look tone deaf. They have to address it. They have to address it. But if they do address it, could that potentially lead to a self-fulfilling cycle of, of you know negative sentiment that's been really hitting the shares? Well, and as you point out in your story, there is some optimism out there from no less than Warren Buffett. This stat, or this stat really uh, caught me off guard. More than $13 billion he piled into in terms of financial stocks in the third quarter. That's amazing. That's right. It's a huge bet on banks and the biggest banks as well. So uh, it'll be interesting to see whether his vote of confidence in the banks uh, has been backed up. I also am curious because we kept talking about in terms of uh, Fed interest rates and the yield curve that we said, you know, ultimately it's going to be a better and better environment from the banks, but we haven't really seen that play out, have we? No. the flat- with the flattening, it hasn't No, helped. the flat yield curve has really hurt the banks um, in terms of their ability to sort of make money on higher interest rates. And so that is something that a lot of the analysts are saying is still putting earnings under pressure going forward. I think it'll be interesting, too, because I feel like from the Wall Street strategists, we've heard different things about people, you know, risk-off trades and people 
stockpiling more into cash assets, and then others saying this is a great buying opportunity. Yes, and December, you know, don't forget all that volatility that happened in markets was in December. So a lot of the clients of banks stayed on the sidelines because right. they didn't want to risk losing the money that they'd made for the rest of the year. Yeah. It's a great piece. Lynn Unwin, uh, finance reporter for Bloomberg, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Check out her story on the she Bloomberg She will be busy today. next week. Oh Very much goodness. so. <laughs> Looking forward to the analysis. Sure. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Thursday. Carol Masser along with Jason Kelly. Let's bring in Russ Norwood. He's CEO and founding partner at Venturi Wealth Management. They've got roughly a billion dollars in assets under management. And Russ joining us on the phone from Austin, Texas. Russ, nice to have you here with Jason Kelly and myself. So tell me a little bit about this market environment. A lot of macro stories, whether it's U.S.-China trade, whether it's the government shutdown, uh, whether it's we're nearing a recession or not. Pick your story, if you will. What does it tell you about the market environment? What's to come, perhaps, over the next three to six months? Yeah, thanks, Carol. You know, it's um, it's interesting to me, the environment we've been in. There's been more headlines about the political risk, and I think the trade in China and reality is, I think, while a lot of that may have a psychological impact, the markets have been telling us something really interesting for several months. And I think what's really important is to focus on you know, the leading indicators like the, the equity market really since the fall has been forecasting something much more ominous on, on the global economy, as well as the retracement of the 10-year Treasury. So the 10-year coming in from, you know, roughly 335, uh, close to 340, uh, last fall was really showing us a lot of weakness globally. And then the collapse of oil prices, you know, looked like there was some real demand destruction in the world. And so, you know, with that backdrop, we can talk a lot about trade and we can talk a lot about the president and, and, and what's going on with the border wall and everything else. But it's all, frankly, a great big distraction from what's really happening in the economy. And, you know, the equity market suffered a lot of technical damage during that period. Uh, and, and it still looks like the jury's out whether the bottom's in. I mean, we've had a, a phenomenal recovery in the equity market uh, on Christmas Eve, uh, quite a big breadth uh, pickup in, in the markets. And that's that's impressive, but right. we, I think we really need to see some things to confirm that that uh, the, the worst is behind us. No doubt the global, res, you know, global economy looks like it's in a recession uh, and, you know, it's just yet to be confirmed. But yeah, and the U.S. Right. is going to have to well, dodge a bullet here. I also think, you know, investors tend to really respect what's going on in the Treasury trade. And if you do, like as you rightfully pointed out, uh, you take a look at what we're seeing in terms of yield. It's not like they've made their way back up, uh, no. even though we've seen the bounce back on the equity side of things. Absolutely right. I, I actually talked to someone yesterday, and he said, well, interest rates are going back up. And I said, going back up from what? I mean, they're going back <laughs> right. up from, a two, exactly. from a 265 to a 272. That's hardly a vote of confidence by the Treasury market and what's going on in the world. And, you know, the talk about the Fed, the concern about the Fed, I mean, every situation where the Fed gets involved 
in 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 pulling liquidity out of the market. Uh, they're always hawks until they're not, and and I think they tend to blink whenever housing craters in, and we start to see this kind of weakness. So my guess is the Treasury market it it always moves ahead of the Fed, and I think the Treasury market's telling us that the Fed's probably done, and uh, you, you know, and and that that really suggests that we probably see some additional sluggishness in into the you know the latter part of the year, uh, but uh, you know it's. This is a, a natural occurrence, and I've been telling clients for some time that, that uh, you know, we need to expect this. It's, uh, it, it has to happen. We've had a really long expansion on, with really cheap money. And what do you make of oil right now, Russ? Because I feel like that's taken a backseat to a lot of the uh, sturm and drang of the equity markets and, and even some of the bond markets. You're down there in Texas, not to be too parochial, but I know your neighbors and your friends, uh, you know, they think about oil prices day to day. Yeah, they do. You know, and fortunately, I'm in Austin, Texas, and not Houston, right. Texas. And I, I grew up in Houston. I think that you know the oil industry has adapted quite a bit uh, to change in prices. So, you know, I think that there's you know several thousand wells out in Midland area that are shut in right now that, that can come on at any time. We've got a real you know we, we're we're victims of our own success in the oil industry. But the, the one thing to remember that's important about oil, while it may affect the local economies in, in producing states like ours, uh, oil has always been, and the price at the pump for gasoline has always been one of the greatest stimuluses for economic activity. Yeah. It, it's likened to a tax cut that gets immediately in the pockets of, you know, everybody driving uh, gas-guzzling cars still that haven't gone electric. So. You know, the reality is price cures price. In a lot of cases, we've had prices come down. I'm, I was concerned more about that from the demand side because I think that combined with, with equities and, and what we've seen in the bond market have really uh, indicated more weakness. But it, it also has a, the reverse effect in helping out the consumer and, and – uh, well- well, this is what's interesting. If I, if I may jump in for a second, because I do think about, you know, we focus obviously when we've seen the equity markets under pressure, you know, most folks are not necessarily in the stock market, right? But there are a lot of people driving cars. Frankly, there's a lot of people driving pickup trucks today. And, yeah. and you know, those guys stand at the pumps and pump $100 worth of gasoline into their tanks a few years ago. And, you know, today that's and they're doing that, you know, several times a week, the guys that are working construction and whatnot. So when you put, you know, $40 extra a week in their pockets, it ends up finding its way through the economy. So there's a buffer effect, right? So this this gives us some economic relief that that ultimately right. is going to soften the blow of some of these things. Got it. Russ Norwood, thank you very much. Chief Executive Officer, Founding Partner at Venturi Wealth Management, over a billion dollars in assets under management. Russ joining us from Austin, Texas. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.